All right, we're in Genesis 4. I love Genesis 4. I didn't know how much I loved Genesis 4 till this week. I've been studying this academically for years. Never has it gripped my heart like this. I'm so excited to hear from the Lord this morning. So please turn to Genesis 4 in your Bibles. We are going to start with Genesis 3.15. Just reading that one verse, and then we'll read Genesis 4. Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And now Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Settle in. All right. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother, spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he he called the name of the city after the the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. 
I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. A friend of mine recently told me about a a Batman comic, uh, which I haven't read, but I went and looked this one up. It's poignant. It describes a confrontation between Batman and his craziest arch enemy, the Joker. And the Joker is in this scene, he's bragging that he made one of the good guys go crazy. Commissioner Gordon, if you care. He's bragging to Batman and that's where this scene comes in. The Joker says this, I've demonstrated that even the sanest man alive can be driven to lunacy. All it takes is one bad day. That's how far the world is from where I am, just one bad day. That strikes very near to the heart of Genesis 4. Just one sacrifice, one little seed of jealousy, one little word to your brother, one walk out to the field, one moment to stoop and pick up a heavy stone, one moment of rage, or one bad day away from being Cain. Sin is just that swift and just that dangerous. So the first point that I wanna talk to you about is point number one, sin is an avalanche. Um, Before I get into that, I wanna pray. Father, as we examine your word together, please preach the seriousness of sin to our hearts, but don't leave us in despair. Lift our heads and preach to us the seriousness of grace too. Lift us up to new heights of love for Christ and freedom in Christ for the sake of Christ and for his glory. Amen. So I don't know if you guys know how avalanches work. I suppose if you're from, from Colorado or you know somewhere with snowy mountains, you might be more familiar than people from the South. But basically an avalanche happens when there's snow on the ground on a hill and then a, a layer of looser snow with larger crystals forms on top or a small layer of frost. And then another heavier, denser snowfall happens. And that little layer of frost, that little layer between the two snowfalls is key. Because everything looks solid and beautiful and stable. From the outside, it's just a really pretty mountain. But underneath all that beauty, there's this weak link, this layer ready to fall. And so it all takes is this little layer of almost microscopic ice crystals and the whole hillside can come sliding down, gaining momentum with gravity and just causing utter havoc. It's a catastrophe when it happens. It's very hard to see it coming. Cain had built this whole life for himself. You ever think about Cain? You just sit and look at the Bible and think about Cain. You know, I I think I walked into this text thinking Cain was a despicable human. Cain was the worst of the worst. I think we'd love to have Cain as our neighbor. He was religious. 
He's there in the course of time offering his sacrifices to God like a good son of Adam. He worked hard. He was a keeper of the field. He sweat into this ground that God had cursed, but he still worked it anyway. And then he brought of the produce to God as an offering. He was a religious man. And he was probably the favored son of his parents. They named him Cain, which rhymes with the word for got or acquired. You might think of Cain and gain in English. So it says his name is Cain, got, and then Eve says, I have got a man with the help of the Lord. There's something about this firstborn seed of the woman that they're really proud of. And then they, in contrast, name his younger brother, Hevel, vanity, nothingness, breath. So there's this solid got and then vanity, Cain and Abel. And remember the Lord had promised that the woman would have a seed an offspring, Genesis 3.15 that we read at the beginning. This promised seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And who better to fill that role than their firstborn Cain? Strong Cain, good religious Cain. Who better? But in the course of time, when he and his little brother came to offer sacrifices to God, the unthinkable happened for Cain. And maybe for the first time in his life, Abel, was received well and Cain wasn't. The guy who was nothingness and vanity had the the pleasure, the, the regard of God and Cain didn't. And in that moment, a tiny, almost microscopic layer of frost formed over Cain's heart. One little weakness and that's all it would take. Sin was devastatingly dangerous for Cain because of its subtlety. He just didn't see it coming. Even before Cain's moment of catastrophe, the actual murder of his brother, the Lord comes near to him. Do you notice that? God doesn't just show up as a judge later. He comes first as a counselor, like a friend. God takes the initiative and he tells him something really important about sin. This is in verse seven. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you and you must rule over it. Sin is crouching. That's the language of a lion hidden in the grass just outside your tent flap, ready to pounce on you. Hard to see, great camouflage, but you're very near death if you're near that lion. It's subtle and it's dangerous. Sin is like that, it's stealthy. It creeps in just on the edges of our peripheral vision. You have to be looking for it to catch it. It's so minor, it's so small, it's so subtle in how it begins that we just don't give any thought. Because remember the story of Cain doesn't begin with a grisly murder. It begins with irritation, jealousy. It begins with why him and not me? The number of times I say that in my heart every week. Why them and not me? Unbelievable. That little jealousy gives to a little irritation and then a little anger and then a little murder. So it doesn't take much for an avalanche to happen. You know, if you're actually climbing a mountain, you just put your pickaxe in just the wrong spot. You'd never know from the outside, but one little spot, you tap into that layer of frost or the looser crystals, it can all collapse. 
So even though God came not as a judge, but as a counselor first to say, look out, you're in danger. Cain still couldn't resist that one little moment of rage. That one little chipping at the snow. So first little snowball tumbles down and then before he could blink an eye, the mountainside of his life had crumbled from beneath him, gone. All that religiosity for what? Now he's an outcast. And the story of Cain stands as a timeless warning to us all that you are entirely capable of worse sin than you can possibly imagine. So am I. Sin snowballs quickly and we can all be caught in the avalanche, which means that sin, like the most horrible sins that you can think of aren't just the things that those other really bad people do. It means sin is crouching at your door. So, you know, what are the sins that horrify you? Maybe you can tell that by the ones you judge most harshly in other people. Is it cheating on their wife? Is it murder? Is it lying? Is it thievery? Abuse? You pick your poison. We're all just one bad day away. All we have to do is ignore God's warning about how subtle sin is. And this wonderful life that you enjoy can crumble like that mountainside, just that fast. And if you're starting to feel alarmed and think, John, it's time to move on to the next point, <laughs> that's the point. That's the point. Genesis 4 is here to get your attention. It's God saying to us, wake up. This is more serious than we think. Are we paying attention? But if sin is subtle and swift like an avalanche, the grace of God, it's warm and available like a sunrise. That's our second point. Grace is a sunrise. Look with me back at verses 11 through 16. This is after the sin, after the murder, the Lord gives this judgment to Cain. He says, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now notice there's gonna be two things that God says in this judgment to Cain, two aspects of his consequence. One, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Two, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Okay, you got that? That's what God said to Cain. First, the ground is gonna be like really cursed for you, right? Adam could still get grain and, and plants amid the thorns and thistles. For Cain, it's just thorns and thistles. So the ground won't yield to you its strength. And two, you're gonna be a fugitive. I mean, what do you think Adam's response would be? Hey, Cain, you murdered my son? It's gonna be vengeance. He's going to run now. He's on the run. Those are the two consequences that God gives Cain. Listen to what Cain says. He's about to do what his mother did. When the serpent said, did God really say? And Eve adds to the command of God, Cain does the same. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground. That's true. And from your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. God gave him two, Cain said four. Did you catch that? 
What's God's response? Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a sign on Cain, a mark, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and sandaled, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod is the word for wandering in Hebrew. Uh, So he goes to the land of wandering. So, God gives him two things. Cain responds back for, you know, that the exercise in interpersonal communication where you go, now I'm going to repeat back to you what I heard. <laughs> Cain did not do it well, right? So God, in response to the two additions, God says, no, I'm actually going to take vengeance on anyone who kills you. And that will be a, something like a protection for you. And I'll give you a sign, a mark. Now that word mark or sign is the same word used in Genesis 9 for the rainbow, the sign of God's commitment to the well-being of his people. And it's the later used in Genesis and throughout the whole Bible for circumcision, which is a sign of God's covenant family, a sign that God is for you and has set you apart for him. God gives him a sign. In other words, here's what I'm trying to get at. Cain can't believe that God would still have any grace left for him. After all, he's done. But that's not what God said, is it? Cain is so bent under the burden of his guilt that he can't look up at the face of God. The face of God who's looking down with warmth and compassion on his wayward son. He doesn't come down in a thunderstorm. He comes down gently. What have you done? The cold snows of sin are just settling down over Cain's heart and chilling him. And his own guilt makes his heart so ingrown, so bent that he can't even look up at the face of God for even a moment. God's grace was there, available and warm like a sunrise. But he's so me-focused, he can't even look up to see it. Do you ever get so wrapped up in your own guilt and shame that all you see is you? It's the word iniquity, avon in Hebrew. When you see iniquity in the Bible, it means bent, curved, twisted, malformed. It's what sin does to us, makes us ingrown. Do you ever believe like Cain that you've chipped away at the grace of God one too many times and that there's no more left? Remember in Genesis 3, at the very end, God drives Adam from the garden. It says, now the Lord drove the man from the garden. That's the exile of Adam from the garden into Eden, the surrounding region. But notice that it doesn't say that God drove Cain out of Eden. What does it say? Verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Cain went away. God didn't leave Cain. Cain left God. He goes away from Eden to the east, the direction of exile, ironically into the sunrise. And he said, my avon, my iniquity is too much for me to bear. My twisting in on myself is more than I can handle. In other words, 
He's literally saying in, in Hebrew, I'm so bent down under my burden, I can't straighten up anymore. I can't be upright. His guilt and self-pity had caused him to be so myopic and self-obsessed that he couldn't even look up and see the dawn. He just keeps saying how dark it is. Imagine a boy who gets into such serious trouble that his father gives him a serious consequences. Because you've done this, now you're gonna do the dishes after dinner for a month. And the boy responds, I see, you don't even love me and packs a bag and runs away from home. That's what's happening here with Cain. Cain believed there was no grace for him. He believed he was too far gone. He believed God was too stingy, too miserly to even show him compassion. So when God comes and says, what happened to Abel? Cain says, what about me? I have, I have to live with this. It's almost like he says, God, what have you done to me? So he runs away. He went away from the presence of the Lord and he builds himself a city of self-sufficiency where he just doesn't need God anymore. He doesn't need to work the ground anymore because now he's got art and commerce and trade and all of that. And he can have his own fake garden and not need God. But all the while, the father was waiting at home, ready and willing to show grace to his wayward son. And if it's reminding you of the prodigal son parable. There's a reason for that. (laughs) The story of two sons and a father who yearns for reconciliation for both runs throughout the scriptures. So when Cain saw his sin and his guilt, he despaired, but he didn't despair of himself, which would have been healthy. Self-despair to a point is healthy. He despaired of God. He points the finger at God and says, look what you've done to me. But what if he had despaired of himself? What if he had, in humility, confessed his sins and his wickedness to God? What do you, how would this story be different if Cain had done that? Friends, if your sin has caused an avalanche in your life, or if you are stuck in a pattern of sin that seems absolutely unbreakable, the beginning of salvation is healthy self-despair in the presence of God. It's saying, I'm out. I can't do anything else. I can't fix my problem. I can't be good enough. I need you. Humility like that is where all that healing begins. And instead of saying, look what you've done to me, God, we point at the cross and say, look what I did to him. Look what I did to you. Have mercy on me. And then he does. (laughs) He does have mercy. That's when the amazing grace of God is so near. You know, John Newton wrote that hymn. He was a slave trader. When his eyes were opened by Christ to see the horror of what he had done, the gospel warmth that came out of that man's pen for the rest of his life was amazing. Just read his letters, read his hymns. He knew the warmth of the sunrise because of the darkness of his night. Sin is swift and subtle like an avalanche, but grace is warm and available like a sunrise. And all Cain had to do was look up from his navel gazing at the face of God. And the light of God would have dawned in his darkness. And it's no different for us. 
Now there's um, two plot lines you may have noticed. A big significant one in Genesis 4 is given to Cain and a little bit at the end is given to Seth. So the name Seth means replacement. Um, Adam and Eve were really uncreative with naming their children. So when one dies, they just name him replacement when they have a third one. So Seth, uh, Cain and Seth got and replacement <laughs> are the two family lines that are followed through this text. And again, if you're thinking seed of the serpent, seed of the woman, you're on the right track. So Cain sins and builds a city where he can hide from God and have his own little concrete garden without of, you know, God's rules and requirements. And in this godless garden-like city, sin spirals out of control. And we get seven generations of Cain ending in Lamech, who takes two wives for himself. So now we've got polygamy. This is going well. And then he brags about his own violence and power. I've killed a man just for wounding me. And a young man just for striking me, a smack. It's not going well for self-sufficiency. We don't do well without God. Seth's line is also traced and it's the counterpoint. It's the contrast. Seth has a son named Enosh. And the last verse in chapter four says, that's when people began to call on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord. That is a key phrase in this story. It's a key concept in the Bible. It's shorthand. There's a whole bunch of stuff packed into what that phrase means, meant to the original audience, means to us, meant in the New Testament, etc. But here's how I sum all of that up. Calling upon the name of Yahweh is asking and trusting God to do what he said he would do. That's what this means. Asking and trusting God to do what he said he would do. So Cain says, there's no hope for me. I'm lost. No grace, no compassion, no salvation. Guess I'm on my own. Enosh says, God, you said that you would crush the serpent. You said you would bring hope from our despair. You said you'd bring light from darkness and life from death. So please do what you said you would do. He called upon the name of the Lord. In other words, Adam and Eve and Cain talked to God. Enosh prayed. That's the difference. Calling on the name of the Lord is despairing of ourselves. I can't be righteous. I've tried. And it's asking God to be your righteousness for you. I can't save myself. God, you have to do it. And you said you would. And he does. You and I want to be, well, not Abel. I wrote Abel, but I think we don't want to be Abel. He dies. We want to be Enosh in the story, at least. He's the good guy. He does the right thing. We're probably a lot more like Cain. If sin hasn't swept over us like an avalanche, if our lives haven't crumbled, we have dear friends whose it has, and we're just one bad day away. But there is hope. There's hope for us. There's hope for you. There is more grace. The hope and the grace is not in behavior modification. It's not in religiosity and quiet times. It's not in worldly success. It's not in life hacks and it's not in therapy. Our one and only hope to experience the grace of God, like the sunrise, is calling on the name of the Lord and asking him to do what he promised to do. That's why he makes the promises. 
the prophet Joel said, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel, the prophet, was looking forward to the day when the Messiah, the seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent and deliver humanity from death and darkness, would come. And in that day, he would answer the call once and for all. He would defeat death and he would save us. He would do what he promised he would do back in Genesis 3.15. And in Romans 10, Paul quotes, so Joel's looking forward in time to when that day comes. Romans 10, Paul's looking back because that day came. In Romans 10, he quotes the verse from Joel and says, guess what? The Lord upon whose name we call, it's Jesus. Jesus Christ is that Lord. In other words, salvation is available to all who look to Jesus and ask him to be the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The New Testament says all of God's promises are yes and amen in him, in Jesus. So we ask and trust Jesus to do what he said he would do. Defeat evil in us, Christ. Deliver us. Forgive us, he promised. Cleanse us. That's where salvation is found. That is where grace is found. God says to Cain, why is your face fallen? All you have to do is look up. The sun is rising. Let the warmth of the grace of God just wash over you. And let's ask him and trust him to do what he said he would do. Let me end with four concluding reflections from chapter four. Uh, four implications of the text. And then we'll move into communion. Number one, God is not waiting around for you to mess up. He's not. He's not itching to punish you, to have an opportunity to move in and chastise you. He doesn't look forward to that. In fact, he moves toward you in your moment of weakness with the strength and grace you need then to resist the temptation. With resurrection power that you need to turn from death to life. He moves towards you. That's why Paul says, grace to help in our time of need. Was that Paul who said that? Someone in the Bible said that. Number two, when we do sin, God is not eager to drop the hammer on us. He moves closer still with warmth, compassion, and grace. This one Paul definitely said, where sin abounds, grace super abounds. Number three, when we are bent over under that burden of our iniquity and guilt, the death of Jesus in our place allows us to stand upright again. That's how it works. He paid for our sin and guilt. He paid the price. So it's just for God to lift our faces and shine the light of his grace onto us. We'll talk about this more in a minute at communion because I get to preach two sermons. 
but it's true. When we feel bowed down under that guilt, it's the blood of Christ that lifts us up. Last, four. The sunrise is most beautiful after the darkest night. If you are in a dark night of the soul now, hope, grace, has never been so near as it is right now. Apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. Get your hands around the cross. Get your heart around the mercy of God and the man, Jesus Christ. That's where healing is. That's where hope is. Then you can stand upright. I'll end with the words from Psalm 112, verse four, and then I'll pray. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Lord Christ, you came to us like the sunrise in the darkness of our exile. We couldn't straighten up from our guilt without you. We cannot stand upright and look you in the eye without you coming to us first. We thank you for your absolutely astounding grace to us when we have so betrayed you. You are so good to us. You are so full of compassion, so full of mercy. And I'm struck that you refuse to choose between justice and mercy. You said, I'll have both. You are so loving. We thank you and we praise you for that. Amen.